If you've been around River Life lately, you might have noticed I look a little different these days. So it is true, you're not going crazy, something is a little different, I'm going bald. Okay, no, no, that's not it. Well, it is true, I am very much going bald. I could thank my grandfather for that. But I've lost some weight. Uh, back in July, I decided that I needed a little help. I was not managing my weight well. I was stuck around 250. I was not managing my diabetes. My blood sugars were higher than they've been for years, and, and I needed some help. So I reached out. I signed up for a weight loss program, and it's been very successful. Uh, I'm down 25 pounds so far, and I know. Um, and, and I'm halfway to my goal of 50 pounds, which that'll bring me down, down to about 200, which is really close to my marriage weight which is crazy to think about because I have not been that for 25 years. Um, and so along the way, I've realized a few things about myself. So first and foremost, I'm an emotional eater. And I've known that about myself because I've, I've done some, some diet programs in the past and kind of some on my own, some with programs. And, and so I know I'm an emotional eater. But this time around, I've been diving a little deeper, trying to go a little deeper here. And so I've realized a few things about myself. First is, I'm a reward eater. So after a lousy day at work, woo, is that me? I'm going to assume that's them, so they're getting it worked out. So I, I'm a reward eater. After, after a cruddy day at work, and yeah, church work can be cruddy some days, and I want to eat something really yummy as a reward for making it through a bad day. Um, I'm, I'm also a comfort eater. If I'm feeling sad, depressed, angry, anxious. I eat as a way of making myself feel better. And then I'm also a procrastination eater. If there's something that I need to do and want, or need to do but don't really want to do, I will eat as a way of procrastinating and putting off what I really should be working on. And so all of these things have led me to a really big question. Where did I learn this? Where did I learn this? And the truth is, I don't know. No one else in my family is overweight. Food was never pushed as an emotional solution. But I learned this somewhere. Somewhere from infancy to elementary school age, I learned it because this has been a part of my life for most of my life. And, and I guess it means I just still have a lot of work to do to figure this out. Because here's the truth about losing weight. Changing what you eat is easy. Changing why you eat is really hard. And I've changed what I eat. But I'm still trying to figure out why I eat. And I know I have to figure this out. I know I have to. Because if I don't, I'm bound to return to my old eating habits and eventually my old weight. And that really scares me. So, you know, what's true for eating is kind of true for life. And it's definitely true for spirituality. Change doesn't happen by focusing on what we do. True, lasting change 
only comes when we focus on why we do things. And doing this requires going back in order to go forward. The answer to why do I do this? Why do I keep doing this? The answer to that always will lie in our past. Maybe it's our recent past. Maybe it's our distant past. And maybe even it's a generational past long before we ever existed. We have to look back. In order to move forward, we have to look back, and we have to be able to look back at things like our family of origin. Which is, which is you've heard that, you, maybe you've heard that phrase around. That's a phrase to represent your family as it was when you were a child. Not your family as it is now, but as it was in your, your core developmental years, your family of origin. It also means looking back into your culture to see how it has shaped you. So, so what is going back in order to move, go forward? What is that? Here it is in one sentence. It's breaking free from the destructive, sinful patterns of your past to live the life of love God intends for you. Going back to go forward is breaking free from the destructive, sinful patterns. Those scripts, those messages, those rules, those cultural norms that have gotten passed on from generation to generation. Those sins that are now a part of you. Breaking free from those in order to live the life God intends for you to live. Now, that sounds great, but how do we actually do that? How do we actually do that? Well, it involves understanding two big-picture principles from Scripture. There are two big-picture ideas about our past that come out over and over and again in Scripture. So the first one is this. The blessings and sins of our families going back two to three generations profoundly impact who we are today. In other words, what happens in one generation tends to get passed on and tends to get repeated in the next. And often this can go on for generations and generations. See, God built this principle into the law of Moses. The very law that he intended to transform the Israelites from a slave race into a world-changing race. Part of the law was this principle. In fact, right in the middle of the, the Ten Commandments, actually toward the beginning of the Ten Commandments, we read this verse. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath, or in the waters below. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. 
of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In case Moses didn't pick that up the first time God told him, in that same scene, a handful of chapters later in the book of Exodus, God repeats himself and says it again. This is uh, God passed in front of Moses. God's presence passed in front of Moses, and God said this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Both of these passages speak to this spiritual reality that the blessing in the sins of our families going back two or three generations profoundly impact who we are today. Because of this spiritual reality, there's a near universal pattern that happens. What happens in one generation is often repeated in the next. Talk to any family therapist, and they will tell you this, that they see this over and over and over again. What happens in one generation gets repeated in the next. And if it's not dealt with, it gets repeated in the next and the next and the next. So unhealthy behavior, destructive choices, sins, literally get passed on from generation to generation. And if you ever look at your family tree and look at it not from a genealogical perspective, but from a relational perspective, you will see this. It happens with everyone. And this is actually one of the tools that we do in the EHS course is we sit down with you and walk through your family tree and you can see these patterns. And every time it comes up, we see patterns like divorce, alcoholism, anger, violence, sexual abuse, prejudices, poor marriage, broken relationships, relational cutoff and and rejection. Those get passed on from generation to generation. Family patterns from the past tend to get played out in the present, often without us even being aware of it. See, that's why I like to say, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa and grandma, and great-grandpa, and great-grandma, they're in your bones. And we carry with them the blessings and the curses, the, the sins of generations. See, you might think that you're acting independently, but you're not. You are acting out a script that has been a part of your family for generations. 
You're acting out the family rules, the family messages, the cultural standards that have been a part of your family for generations. We are not independent actors in our own life. So you want to see this play out in Scripture? It's actually right there. Let me introduce you to four generations of a family. This is a partial family tree of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Just a partial, not, not a complete family tree. Those four guys are in dark blue in there, and there are some wives and kids listed out there. Now, here are some patterns. When you, when you look at, at these four generations, here are patterns that you see throughout the book of Genesis. Most of the book of Genesis is this family line. Here are some of the patterns you see. First, a pattern of lying. Abraham lied twice about Sarah, his wife. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage was characterized by lies. Jacob lied to almost everybody. In fact, his nickname was Deceiver. Ten of Jacob's kids lied about Joseph's death, covered it up. They kept a family secret for over a decade. A pattern of lying from generation to generation. We also see favoritism by parents. Abraham favored Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau. Jacob favored Joseph. And then his younger brother, Benjamin, after Joseph Joseph was dead. We also see tensions and rivalries between brothers. Isaac and Ishmael were cut off from one another. They split. Jacob fled his brother Esau and was completely cut off for years. And then Jacob, uh, uh, Joseph, Joseph was cut off from his brothers for over a decade. See, this family legacy is proof of the spiritual principle that the blessings and sins of our families going back two or three generations profoundly impact who we are today. And every time Pinfo and I, we we sit down and do this thing called a genogram, it's kind of like a relational family tree. And we've done this with a lot of couples. Every single time we do that, and we go back three generations, we see patterns. We see repeated sins. We see destructive behaviors being mirrored even unconsciously from one generation to the next. And see, there are two great tragedies about this. First, if we are not aware of the ways that we've been shaped by our families and our cultures, we run the risk of repeating the same things. And we run the risk of living a life that is inconsistent with being a follower of Jesus. That's the first great tragedy. The second great tragedy, for you parents out there, right now, you are either reinforcing reinforcing or weakening the sins that you will pass on to your children. Think about that for a moment. Right now in your life, you are either 
reinforcing or weakening the sins that you will pass on to your children. And those of us without kids, you have nieces and nephews and cousins and friends that you pass these on to. So just because you don't have kids, don't think that your legacy ends with you. We all have people we influence. So, there's really only one way to stop this. And that involves the second great spiritual biblical principle. And that's this. Discipleship requires putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and our culture and relearning how to do life God's way in God's family. That's what discipleship is. See, Christians can often get mixed messages about our past. We'll hear, we'll, we'll hear a verse maybe like 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And we're, we're reminded of an amazing truth, that we are new in Christ, that God has forgiven our past, that grace and mercy covers us, and all of that is amazing. But there's a problem. Don't think for a minute that the old ways of your family and your culture are gone simply snapped out of existence. They are still very present in our lives and in our marriages and in our churches. And if we don't go back, if we don't go back to identify and address the patterns of behavior that are under the surface of our lives, there will be large parts of us that will be completely untouched by Jesus Christ. Most of us are living like the iceberg, and the little white part above the surface is what's been redeemed. And we all have whole sections of our life beneath the surface that is untouched, unredeemed by Jesus Christ. Going back in order to go forward is going beneath the surface of the water. And it's digging around. And letting God's gracious hand speak into those deeply embedded parts of our heart and our soul. See, in in Ephesians 4, Paul says this. You were taught with regard to your former self, your former way of life, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So in our context today, That can be read as, put off your family's old rules. Put off your old families and your old culture's rules and scripts. And put on the new family of God. Put on the new rules of 
being a part of the family of God. Put on the new scripts. Put on God's scripts. Put off the scripts you've learned from your family and your culture that are unbiblical and put on the biblical scripts of God. But if you don't know what your scripts are, how can you put them off? You have to know what they are. So the, and this is a process. This does not just happen instantaneously. I've been thinking about my weight and struggling with my weight and losing weight and gaining weight for a few decades now. And I sometimes feel like I'm barely scratching the surface as to why I do the things I do. See, here at River Life, this whole emotionally healthy spirituality idea is really about deeper transformation through greater awareness. And to quote the world-famous theologian, Jay-Z, you can't heal what you never reveal. (laughs) It's true. Never thought you'd hear hear such profundity from Jay-Z. But it's true. If you don't know the sinful patterns of your family and your culture, how can you ever expect to break free from them? How can you ever expect to invite God into a place you don't even know? And even worse, if you know it and you bury it, then you are actively hiding a part of you from God. You are actively allowing a part of you to be unredeemed. There's a part of your heart and your soul and your mind for which the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was meaningless. And we pick and choose the easy parts of our life to be redeemed. But we don't want to go to the hard parts. Emotionally healthy spirituality is all about going into the hard parts with courage, and with some fear, that's okay as well. But knowing that God is good, and God is gracious, and he is alongside us in this journey. See, we are not alone in this. God offers grace to cover our past, as well as strength to keep us from repeating it. God offers grace to cover our past and also strength to keep us from repeating it. Regardless of your past, God's grace is stronger. The power of the gospel says that your family pattern and scripts do not have to define you. That you are not a prisoner to generations of destructive behavior. That is the power of the gospel. When the Bible talks about freedom in Christ, it's not just freedom from the little sins we create. It's the freedoms from generational sin. It's the freedom from historical sin. It's the freedom from historical trauma. All those things that hurt us that we walk around with every day. 
That is the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ can free us of that. And that's what emotionally healthy spirituality is all about. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit here. So what does going back in order to go forward actually look like in a regular person? Well, let me share with you some of my family scripts. These are some things that I've learned. I started on on this journey maybe about eight or nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago, back in seminary, is when I started to kind of dig a little deeper in the below the surface of my iceberg. And over the years, I've continued and been being married to a marriage family therapist for 25 years kind of forces me to, <laughs> whether I like it or not. So here are some of the things I've learned about my family scripts. First, we don't talk about emotions. Okay. We can talk about ideas, events, even stories, but just not emotions. They were never a part of my family's conversations. And it turns out they weren't really a part of my grandparents' conversations as my parents grew up. It was not new to my family. And so this was my greatest weakness going into marriage. It took me years to even realize that I didn't know how to talk about emotions. I didn't even know what I didn't know. Took me years to realize, and then a good 15 years to unlearn what had been passed down for generations in my family. And now, by the grace of God, I'm, I, I have my own, I'm aware of my own emotions. I, I can talk about them. I'm not reactive. I can understand another person's emotions. I can use emotional language to talk with somebody. And that's solely by the grace of God because that did not come in my family. Number two, intellect, reason, and logic is our primary operating system. Intellect, reason, and logic is our primary operating system. My family talks intellectually. Sometimes when I go home over Christmas and we sit around the dinner table and I'm like, man, If any of my mom friends knew this is what our dinner table conversations were like, they would just freak out. They would, the head would just, like, that actually happens? Yeah, my family talks very intellectually about things. We make decisions with logic and definitely not emotions. Emotions are an inferior operating system. You're running like, the latest iOS and emotions are like Windows 95. And that's what I learned. And so I walked into marriage prizing intellect, reason, and logic. And then I had a a wife enter into marriage who felt emotions deeply, who made decisions intuitively. And I thought both of those were bad methods of making decisions. And I criticized her for it greatly. I judged her for it because she was using an inferior operating system. And it took me a long time to realize that I was wrong. 
That, that was just my family's way of making decisions. It was not the best way. But the truth is, I still struggle this to this day. Even in the five years of River Life, I've had ministry team members tell me and challenge me, you're thinking too intellectually about this. You need to understand the emotions that are at play here. Because the truth is, my default mode is still intellect, reason, and logic. I can operate with Windows 95, but I still go to iOS 13 whenever I can. And I'm learning and I'm struggling with how do I unlearn this one? And I'm turning 50 in a year and I'm still working on this. Third, religion is okay, but keep it to yourself. So my parents actually told me this the night I came home after accepting Christ. See, my immediate, no one in my immediate family was Christian. No one went to church. And about half my extended family was Christian. And my parents were okay that I became a Christian, but they told me, keep it to yourself. So that's what I did. And for the first few years of my life, I was a very private Christian when I was around family. When I was around other Christians, sure, I could be Christian. But if I'm around my family, I just keep it to myself. And as it turns out, I was not doing something new. About 40 years prior, I had an uncle who, my, my, all my mom's side grew up going to church, but they were sort of kind of churchgoers. My uncle decided to take his faith really seriously and go maybe, maybe a little far in one direction. And the family really criticized him for that. And I heard the, these comments growing up, these very critical, judgmental, even, even teasing comments about being fanatical or a right-wing nut job, things like that. So religion was okay as long as you didn't take it too seriously. Forty years later, my family repeated the exact same conversation with me. What was even more amazing was my, my grandparents, I knew my grandparents were life, lifelong Lutherans, but they never talked about it. It wasn't until their death, when I was at their funeral, and friends and church members would tell me how strong their faith was. They were pillars in the church, and I was dumbfounded. How could this happen? How could this be? And I never knew it growing up with my grandma and grandpa. They didn't talk about it. They kept it private. And that's one of the things that's actually hard for me. Now, I know that's weird to hear from a guy whose profession is literally to stand up and talk about religion. But it's true. I could do this. But we sit down over coffee, and when I'm not in pastor mode... Like most of the time when I'm with my wife, I'm actually very private about my faith. And it's something that's been difficult for us because I'm very private about my faith. And she grew up in a family where the whole family talked about faith. Faith was very public for her. 
And she desired that from me. And even to this day, I still struggle with it. Because that is a family script that is so deeply ingrained in me and my maternal side of the family. So all of these, all of these and so much more were family scripts that were in place for generations before I ever came onto the scene. Before I was even a blip in my parents' eye, these these rules were in place. And they got passed on to me. And some of them I I have conquered with God's help. Some of them I still struggle with with God's help. But I'm aware of them. I can name them. And after this much work, I still struggle with some of these family scripts. I mean, that shows how deep this iceberg goes. 25 years of marriage, actively working on personal and spiritual development. And I sometimes feel like I've just dented that giant iceberg of my family. Now imagine if you don't really pay much attention to it or ignore it or deny it. So what about you? What are the scripts? What are the messages that you've picked up from your family? What are the messages that have gotten hardwired into your brain without you even realizing it? How are the ways that you're acting right now with your friends, in your marriages, with your kids, where you're living out your family scripts? See, here are just a few of the examples of things that are beneath the iceberg. Some of the rules you might have picked up. Relationships. Men and women have distinct roles that should be kept separate. Men and women cannot be friends. Public displays of affection are not appropriate. How about conflict? Don't disagree with your elders. Loud, angry, constant fighting is normal. How about success? Messages of success. What people think of you is more important than what you actually do. Or how about a good person is one who knows all the cultural etiquette? Or having money makes you more successful? How about family? Messages about family. You owe your parents for, what, for all they've done for you. Don't do anything that brings shame to the family's name or reputation. Or how about duty to family and culture comes before everything? Lastly, how about feelings and emotions? You are not allowed to show or express certain feelings. Your feelings are not important. Keep them to yourself. Or reacting with your feelings without thinking that's okay. These are all messages that you might have grown up hearing because they were passed on to your parents, and your parents pass them on to you. And and if you're not actively working against them, you are reinforcing them in your kids and your nieces and your nephews. 
So what do you need God to redeem? What do you need God to transform? What are the scripts you desperately need to unlearn? So as we close, I want to remind you of a little ship called the Titanic. Now, the Titanic didn't sink because it hit the top of the iceberg. They saw the top of the iceberg and were able to divert course just enough to miss the part they saw. What sunk the Titanic was the part below the surface. That's what ripped a 300-foot gash across the hull and eventually sunk the ship. It was the part beneath the surface of the iceberg. And if you saw the movie, and come on, I know you did. You did, like four or five times. But if you saw the movie, this movie captured this moment perfectly. Because in the upper decks, things were peaceful and beautiful and opulent. But in the lower decks, they were filled with chaos and flooding waters and death. And then the inevitable happened. What started beneath the surface came up to the top. And isn't that kind of how it is with us? On the surface, we may look like we have it all together. We come to church, we smile, we high-five, we shake hands, we say everything's great. But beneath the surface, we are a wreck. Beneath the surface, we are dying in a pile. We're living out unhealthy, destructive behaviors. And we're living the top of the surface, living life. But just like the Titanic, what's beneath the surface will always come up. We don't get destroyed by what's above the surface. We get destroyed by what's below the surface. What's below the surface is what destroys marriages. What's below the surface is what breaks friendships. What's below the surface is what ruins churches. That's why emotionally healthy spirituality is so important. That's why I want every person in this room in that class Because what's below our collective surface has the potential to ruin this church and damage the kingdom of God and damage our witness to our family and our friends. Damage your marriages, damage your children, damage your friendships. And God does not want that for any of us. I'm tired of watching churches and pastors and Christians implode over the stuff beneath the surface. So let's let God in, sign up for the class. Let's let God redeem these patterns. Let's go back in order to go forward. Join me in prayer.
God, thank you. Thank you that you do not condemn us for our past. God, thank you that you do not condemn us for our present. That Christ's forgiveness and Christ's death on the cross can redeem us instantaneously in the present and can help redeem our past and our family's past. God, I pray for courage for myself as I deal with my own past and for every person in here. Lord, give us courage because were it up to any of us, we would run the other direction. Help us know without a doubt your love, your grace, your gentleness. So when we think about embarking on a journey that's scary, a journey that's painful, God, we know that you are there. And you are strong when we are scared. You are a healer when we are broken and hurting. And you are a redeemer when we are full of sin. God, you promised that one day you will, you will make your church a spotless bride. Help us begin that process right now. Redeem, sanctify, glorify, purify us, and save us from ourselves. Thank you, God. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen.